0: This is Gulf Coast Life from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. In late September, Governor Ron DeSantis announced a series of actions aimed at mitigating impacts of immigrants seeking entry into the U.S. from the southern border being resettled in the Sunshine State. Those actions include a new executive order, a lawsuit against the Biden administration, and the appointment of a public safety czar. The lawsuit was filed by Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody against Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas and other top officials with U.S. Customs and Border Protection, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement and U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services over what she calls the Biden administration's failure to enforce federal immigration law and challenging the administration's catch and release policy. Early in his presidency, Biden revoked former Donald Trump's Remain in Mexico executive order and allowed immigrants seeking entry through the U.S. southern border to remain in the U.S. while immigration courts consider their cases. During a news conference from the Lee County Sheriff's Office on September 28th, Moody said the Biden administration's approach is costly to Florida.
1: Florida will pay over $100 million in incarcerating folks here illegally that are committing crimes in Florida. Florida. Over $100 million. Our pleas to this president have gone with no response. You heard from the governor, he demanded what was going on. Who are you releasing? What are their criminal backgrounds? Who's being resettled in our state so that we know its effects on our state, so that we can lead effectively with due regard for the safety and stability of our communities?
0: DeSantis has dubbed this executive action the Biden border crisis executive order. Here's DeSantis at the same press conference explaining the various actions taken in his executive order.
2: I'm signing an executive order to prohibit state agencies that report, or excuse me, to prohibit state agencies that report to me from aiding or abetting in any way what the federal government uh, is doing right now. Uh, We're not gonna be a party uh, to this lawlessness. We haven't, to to, to my knowledge, uh, but we're letting the marker down know that this is an absolute red line. We're not gonna do it. Uh, And the order prohibits our agencies from providing assistance uh, to the feds or any other entity uh, for the transportation uh, of folks uh, who are here illegally into Florida from the Southwest border. It also directs Florida Department of Children and Families determine whether Florida should continue to grant licenses for facilities that house unaccompanied uh, alien uh, minors brought into the state from the southwest border granting licenses to house uh, illegal alien children who do not reside in Florida takes resources away for child welfare uh, from children who do reside here. This is a problem we have to address and we have to put Florida children first. Uh, The order also requests that the Commissioner of FDLE conduct regular audits of companies doing business in Florida, particularly publicly traded corporations and other large companies to verify that they are only employing uh, lawful individuals. Additionally, the order requests state agencies to collect and provide information concerning the impact of illegal immigration in Florida. Uh, We want information on the number and identities of everyone that's been resettled from the Southwest border uh, to Florida. We also encourage both FDLE and Florida Highway Patrol uh, to detain uh, vehicles such as buses or aircraft if they're transporting illegal aliens from the Southwest border. If there's reasonable suspicion that the vehicle is being used for human trafficking or drug trafficking. Unfortunately, that is an all too common occurrence. When you talk about what's going on here, Uh, the order also requests information from state officials on the number who are pending criminal prosecution in Florida and the number who have been convicted, including the crimes convicted, the amount of funds expended on health care for uh, uh, illegal aliens and the amount of funds spent on social services.
0: Lastly, Governor DeSantis announced the appointment of former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Florida, Larry Keefe, to a new position of public safety czar. His job in that role involves directing implementation of this new executive order. There's a lot to unpack here, but joining us for a closer look at these recent immigration-related actions is Indira Demine. She's a Fort Myers-based immigration attorney here in southwest Florida and uh, has been a practicing attorney for nearly a decade now. She opened her solo practice in 2016 with a focus on immigration and nationality law, helping clients through each step of what can be a confusing and daunting immigration process. She's represented clients in removal and deportation trials, also clients going before U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and helping clients with petitions through U.S. consulates across the globe. She's also given immigration-related presentations to a wide array of organizations here in southwest Florida, and she's spoken on past editions of this show about issues concerning temporary protected status and deferred action for childhood arrivals. DeMine's own family immigrated to the U.S. in 2002, and Deira DeMine, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you for having me. And joining me in studio is Florida Gulf Coast University founding faculty member and law professor, Pamela C. Here at FGCU, she teaches courses on a variety of law-related topics, including comparative justice, international and comparative law, constitutional law and globalization, and the rule of law. Her expertise has made her a highly sought-after lecturer all over the world, including in Switzerland, Italy, China, Greece, Brazil, and England, to name just a few. She's a licensed attorney with the Florida Bar Certification in International Law. She provides consultation and legal advice for both foreign and domestic businesses on international legal concerns. And she served for six years on the Florida Bar's Professional Ethics Committee, of which she was a past chair. She's also published a book on international business in South Carolina. And her CV includes numerous published articles on an array of international topics. Pam C., welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Always great to connect with you. Nice to be here, too. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL and pam just in the interest of you know precision of language before we really get into it can we establish some proper terms and definitions relating how we're going to refer to to immigrants because you and I have discussed this in the past but when should we be using terms like undocumented or unauthorized or out of status and and what do they mean
3: well they they have a variety of meanings too okay um
0: So so it is more than just seemingly confusing. It's in fact confusing. Right. It's not as easy as it looks.
3: An undocumented alien is one that is here in the United States without documentation. They don't have uh, the paperwork that says, I am here because I have this visa, I have this authorization. Then of course the unauthorized alien is one who is here that may also be undocumented but was not provided with the appropriate paperwork in order to remain and stay here. One who is out of status is one who actually came here properly and stayed too long. So their status expired, so they're out of status. The term illegal is sometimes used erroneously But when I take a look at this executive order, the governor provides what I think is a clear definition of what this applies to, illegal aliens. And he refers back to federal law when he talks about what is an illegal alien, and that's any non-citizen or non-national of the United States who is present in the U.S., but does not have a lawful immigration status under U.S. immigration laws. And he goes on to to make clear that one who is paroled into the U.S., that means they have authorization but they do not have documentation, that someone who is paroled into the U.S. is not in a lawful status, making them also illegal alien for the purpose of this document. So there are a number of different definitions, And I think that the governor has placed in his executive order a very specific definition. It helps to make this more clear, but it also muddies the waters for any other analysis that you might want to make.
0: Sure, sure. And, and, you know, since the ongoing situation at the U.S. southern border was really kind of, you know, at the crux of and the impetus for the DeSantis administration Mm -hmm. uh, taking these actions late last month, perhaps we should start there. Who is showing up at the southern U.S. border right now seeking entry into the U.S.?
3: there's a lot of people showing up yeah. from from the different reports there's a lot of mexican people who are attempting to cross there are a lot from guatemala from el salvador haiti and a number of south and central american countries that that are attempting to cross the border there's not really a good number because it, there's a large force of them and we don't have somebody down in Mexico counting noses to see, well, where are you from? Yeah. And it, it, it does make it very difficult to know. So it's, it's just a, 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 a fair guesstimate based on those who have
1: attempted to cross. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, and dear DeMine, in, in your practice, do you work with a lot of uh, asylum seekers?
1: Um, we do, yeah. We have a, a large number of asylum seekers um, from various countries, um, most of them from Central America.
0: Have you noticed an influx uh, just with everything that's going on in Haiti right now? And, and I know folks trying to, to come to the U.S.
1: Now, I, I was asked this question before, and we've seen an influx of Haitian clientele from the announcement of TPS for Haitian nationals. So I've seen an influx in our practice from that announcement that happened I want to say in end of May or sometime around that. I have not um, seen an influx of Haitian immigrants that are recent arrivals from the southern border. In fact, I've probably had one phone call, but I am keeping a track of it because of this announcement by the governor. So I have um, been put on notice and I've been trying to get a figure going. But but no, sir, I've not seen an increase.
0: I kind of wanted to focus first on the Florida Attorney General's lawsuit. As I understand it, very early on in the Biden administration, Department of Homeland Security put in place this 100-day pause on certain removal actions um, in order to undertake a review of policies and practices and to make sure the department's resources were being allocated where they're needed most. Uh, That was blocked by a federal judge in Texas. Then Immigration and Customs Enforcement issued a memo in February revising the previous directive in order to prioritize certain enforcement actions, like like focusing on immigrants who would pose a national security threat or had been convicted of of aggravated felony offenses, for example. Um, Moody's legal challenge says these directives violate federal immigration laws and the Administrative Procedures Act. I'd love to get both of your takes on the merits of this lawsuit. And uh, Pam, I'll start with you.
3: In taking a look at what the the attorney general is doing, you have to tie that together with what has happened, certainly most recently in the Supreme Court, related to the um, a lawsuit related to the transfer of, of folks. Um, right at the moment, I think that. She is making an effort to to follow through with what the Ninth Circuit has done, what the the Supreme Court has done in in enforcing current law. Now, the Supreme Court has come come forward and said that the likelihood of uh, Mr. Biden's case is. It's, it's, it's not likely to succeed and mm-hmm. therefore they put back into place and i'll, I'll go back and look at the um, uh, the, the 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 president trump's uh, remain in mexico policy i know we're i know you're planning to talk about that in a bit but but the the remain in mexico policy uh there was a a, a judge up in california that said no 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 that's that's unconstitutional the supreme court came back and said well wait a minute um it's certainly probably is so you cannot have a stay on on the implementation of it and the remain in mexico policy needs to stay in place so you know there's a there's some follow-up with that related to her her challenges in court now and dira you may have had some some experience with this currently um on on you know with some of the calls you may have gotten i don't know if you've had any yet
1: um, I have not. Um, we, we tend to get a trickle down after a little while. But um, as far as the, the MPP program, the Migrant Protection Protocols program, um, because our law firm is here in, in Florida, we haven't taken on border cases. So once the immigrant is released, um and you know they they make their way to florida we we usually take on their removal or deportation case at that point um but i haven't um represented clients and i know some attorneys do but along the border and at the their court hearings along the border during the um mpp program um we usually take them once they get here to to florida um but to answer your question john about the um the lawsuit um, that was filed. Um, now, I have taken a look at it, and there's some really good points in here that um, that I, I completely understand. For example, the governor stated that a lot of times these folks are being released without what's called their proper charging document. Um, and what that is, is Usually when someone is apprehended along the border, um, they, are, they go through what's called a credible fear interview. Um, if they have credible fear um, and the um, CBP officer determines they have a claim to asylum, that CBP officer can then exercise their parole powers and parole that individual into the United States and then um, that individual will eventually get a court notice um, placing them in court proceedings. Um, and and that is deportation proceedings and at that point the person would file their asylum um, application and so on. What the governor is saying is that a lot of these folks right now along the borders are being released with documentation um, but not with the proper document and not with their charging document, their notice to appear that is placing them in deportation proceedings. And I have um, seen a, a few folks with that. What he's talking about is they're released with documentation that says you have to check in with ICE. Immigration, custom enforcement within 90 days of your release from the border. However, they're not given what's called a notice to appear, saying you will get a court date. Please wait for this court date, and so on. And I suspect there's there's a number of reasons why folks are not being being given a notice to appear. So while there is a valid point in 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 the lawsuit about you know just releasing folks and and we. Um, don't have a proper way of uh, figuring out where they are in the country and so on. There are arguments on the other side of that. First, um, immigration court um, has, has been extremely, excessively backlogged um, for several years. Um, and, and what we're seeing happening, and these are folks that I have right now in immigration proceedings that want to move forward with trial. I actually had a trial scheduled two weeks from now, I just got a notice, canceling their court hearing for 2024, um, so so the immigration court system is backlogged as it is, and I suspect that this influx of, of immigrants coming in might be part of the reason why they're not being giving, given a, a, a charging document, is just because the immigration courts right now are so backlogged, that's, that's one reason I'm thinking, Second, another reason I'm thinking is um, the Supreme Court has um, ruled that a charging document, so your notice to appear, well, what used to happen for for several years um, is that a person would be given a notice to appear charging document saying um, you have to show up to a court at a place and a time to be set. And and the reason is, because again, the court system is so backlogged, to actually get that notice to appear filed with the court and get that case scheduled for a hearing, that takes time. So a lot of times these folks along the borders are not, they're given, they're not given a court date, a notice to appear that has a court date and time. The Supreme Court says that um, That is an invalid charging document because it doesn't tell you when to appear um, and what time and so on, so it's an invalid document. The Board of Immigration Appeals said that once that immigrant got their court notice in the mail, that then was... um, that place them in deportation proceedings. So even an invalid charging document was cured by a notice of hearing that would be mailed to the to the immigrant. So so there's been a lot of um, litigation surrounding this charging document. Um, but that is a, a point that the governor brought up in 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 the um, lawsuit is that folks are being released without a charging document playing a devil's advocate, I would say probably the reason that's happening is one, because the Supreme Court has said that charging document that you would have released them with is an invalid charging document, and two, Probably the reason why they're being released without a charging document is because of the significant backlogs in the immigration court. But um, there are a, a number of things that the governor mentioned. That is one of the things that stuck out to me. The other thing that stuck out to me um, is uh, the the governor mentioned about the um, the parole powers of CBP, Customer Border Protection, and basically parole is supposed to be granted on a case-by-case basis. Um, and that the, the, the Biden administration has been using their parole powers just basically as a blanket parole power that says everybody is paroled into the country. Um, He is correct that parole is is supposed to be granted on a case-by-case basis. Um, And that usually happens at the end of a credible fear interview. I don't know um, whether or not that claim has merits to it. I don't know whether or not folks are actually going through the credible fear interview and at the end of the credible fear interview being granted or denied parole. Um, But I will say that um i've practiced under the obama administration and under the trump administration um and now under biden and during different administrations we've seen different policies when it comes to this parole power right so it's not that the biden administration is doing something that's never been done before um i i've seen this happen under different administration when there's an influx of a particular um immigrant from a particular country um so it's not i don't i don't think that they're doing anything that hasn't been done before whether or not they're abusing that power i guess is up to debate
0: okay regardless of the outcome of this lawsuit could could a positive thing pam just be that it's bringing more attention to this issue that needs to be addressed one way or the other and by then, I'm just thinking of, you know, some of what Indira was just telling us about how lengthy this process can be um, and just, you know, taking your case against a federal prosecutor before a judge who also works for the attorney general. And in this case, I'm talking specifically about, you know, asylum seekers. Um, and with the process being so lengthy, it, it, it's almost like for some people, it, it feels like it's encouraging them to abandon the process and kind of take their chances living under the radar, if they can do that, and staying in the U.S. Um,
3: and, yeah, and we've had a lot of, a lot of um, uh, results that were unexpected, you know, the, the uh, unanticipated consequences of, of actions that that um, have taken place. But, you know, we're looking at more than just a backlog of cases. This, it, this is a, a system that is totally overwhelmed, that is unable to handle what is coming at its borders. In, when you take a look at what the the uh, appellate courts have said about the um, Trump administration's remain in Mexico policy and some of the other things that were in place, they said, you know what, um, these worked. And therefore, um, if you are going to contest them, you need to explain why uh, what you're doing to replace them is going to be better. And we have, we have seen that it wasn't better and that in the cases themselves, the courts are, are explaining these systems are totally overwhelmed. You cannot keep up. There is something you must be doing in order to retain a, a border of sorts and to protect the people who live at the border. I mean, I, I mean I've got f- some friends that live down on the border there and, and, and I hear about this and they're saying it is just certainly a, 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 a major problem for them when they are looking at um, a system that, that simply does not work. The people that are crossing the border, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of problems that are going on down there, not just um, people who are getting into the United States uh, who do not have the, the proper authority. They're getting into the United States, they are signing in, and they hear from friends and relatives. If you sign in, they'll let you in and you never have to be seen again. Just, you can stay. Just, like as you say, stay under the radar. And that is problematic. And then we have what appears to be a distribution system where people who are, are being brought in to say, well, okay, yeah, you can stay, but, you know, there's no room for you here. We'll, we'll move you over to Texas, to Florida. We'll move you to Indiana. We'll move you to wherever. And there is not – in fact, I was watching on the Florida Channel just a day or two ago and they were talking to some some representatives about that to say, is there a record? And they said, well, there's really not much of a record, and you really can't find out how many people have been transported. Have there been a lot? Yes, there have. Do you know how many? No, we don't. So what that shows is that the USCIS and Customs and Border Patrol do not have a good grasp on the actual numbers that are coming in and being moved from one location to another. And The executive order is making an effort to get a handle on that information and to say we have an understanding that there are these problems. We have uh, credible reports that there there are these problems, and therefore we need to address them because the federal government is incapable of addressing them. And that's, that's the intent of, of this, this order. Now, not to say whether that's, that's the correct way or, or, or not. It's the way that they've chosen to, to follow up and to say, well, all right, if there are buses coming in or if there's an airplane coming in, we need to know who they are. If they are, if they are according to the definition on, in the executive order, if they are illegal aliens, we need to know this. And if they need to be um, uh, returned to their home country or what have you, they need to be turned back over to ICE or or to whomever, where do they need to go? And that's what this, this is intended to do. And there's a, there's a, a lot of other provisions in here that, that uh, address some other financial issues because it is a financial problem for the state of Florida. When you have an influx of, of persons coming in, um, you're they're, they're talking about undocumented alien children and – or excuse me, unaccompanied alien children that are being brought into the state of Florida. Well, if there is a need for additional housing for them, they need someone to care for them. Uh, An unaccompanied minor needs a family to support them. They need a person to support them. They need an organization, they need somebody who is paying for that? Where is that money coming from? How are we going to accomplish this? And what is it going to cost the state of Florida to support these the, the, the influx?
0: To that end, though, because as you know, there's an aspect of the executive order that specifically directs the Department of Children and Families to look into facilities that are housing these unaccompanied minors and determining whether or not the state is going to continue to license them. I understand what you're talking about, the money aspect of it, but if you, if you stop supporting these organizations, the kids are still there. It's, it's not a solution to anything. Well,
3: I think the, the, the executive order looks at whether there should be new ones. Mm. Should there be a new center that is specifically for the unaccompanied alien children? Not whether to say we're not going to, to care for them, okay. but do we need a separate facility? And if you know what the numbers are, you can say, well, we have space available in existing facilities and they can go there. We don't need to build or authorize new facilities in order to do that. They don't have to be separate and apart. And if they're going to be here, integrate them into the society and and let them be in existing facilities. Which so you're
0: saying this is like this is just like the other data collection portions of this executive order. It's more about assessing the situation.
3: That's the way I read that. Okay, you know, it's not saying we don't want them. We are, you know, get them away. It's a matter of saying, well, how many are there, and is this a necessity? and which which tells me that's a that's a kind of a responsible approach um, f- fiscally, to say what what do we need, and when do we need it? Not let's we know they're coming, let's go ahead and build something or let's go ahead and authorize something. so I, I think it's it's it, it's a practical approach to a situation that is unexpected and certainly unknown what the what the extent. Is of the entire of the entire numbers.
0: Okay, okay. I, I want to come back to the executive order in a minute, but before I forget, I, DeSantis in his press conference here in Fort Myers recently said that 99% of asylum claims are not valid. Mm-hmm. And uh, is this hyperbolic speak? Is that how we should interpret this?
3: No. If you take a look at one, of, at least one of the court decisions, they actually on the in the appellate court in the Ninth Circuit stated that at least nine out of every 10 asylum cases is not valid. So his statement is close to the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it might be a little bit high, but, you know, I don't have all the numbers, but at least 90%. And and I think, you know, coming that's coming straight from, um, from the Ninth Circuit. So I think that's, uh, let's see, yep, yep,
0: 90%. So what would make them not, I guess from your perspective, mm-hmm are they legitimately not valid, or are they not valid under a broken system?
3: I think they are legitimately not valid. And okay. having represented some asylum seekers previously, uh, not recently, of course, but but previously, um, an asylum seeker needs to show that they are subject to persecution in their home country. And that's a, that's kind of a high bar to reach. And, you know, there are, there are very specific reasons behind that, whether it's, uh, let's see, what is it, race, religion, nationality, um, uh, you're a member of a, a particular social group, um, uh, you, your political opinion, those kinds of things that you were under a persecution for. And it's not just that you have seen other people be persecuted. It has to be you. Okay. And getting to that level of proof is very difficult. And in fact, I, I I remember one one client of that I had an a, a appeal for that was that lost earlier on, because they could not show with actual documented proof because no one would come forward to testify, no one would provide the documentation to show they had all seen it, but they wouldn't say they wouldn't come forward because they too would be persecuted. So it, it there is a high level of of proof necessary, uh, I think. Um, you know, we, when we talk about um, an, an asylum, and one a person, ha- like I said, has to have suffered um, uh, persecution. What are they being persecuted for? Well, we don't appre- we don't agree with them. Well, then just not agreeing with them. Was there something physical that happened? Was there a a were you um, forced away from going to a particular church because of your religion? Um, what is it that specifically happened, and it had to happen? to you. It may have also happened to others, but it had to happen to you. Just because you observed it does not necessarily mean that you were personally persecuted. So it is a difficult, it's a high bar.
0: Yeah. And Dara, can you weigh in on this with, with, with your experience? Is this yes, something? Yes.
1: Yes. So um, you're, I, I have similar experience, Pam, where winning an asylum is is um, extremely difficult. And I make that extremely clear with asylum seekers, and that is because you're right, there is a high bar that one must meet in order to win an asylum claim. You must show past persecution or or evidence or fear of future persecution based on race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. And here's what I see most of. A lot of the asylum seekers, at least coming to my firm, um, have experienced gang violence, right? Um, and 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 for the most of them are from Central America that have some experience with gang violence. The, the board of immigration appeals have said over and over again that gang violence is not. You're not in a particular social group. It's not a. Um, uh, a, a reason to seek asylum. And, and, and that is the majority of the cases that I see is a lot of times it has to do with the violence in the home country. Um, I, I tend to disagree with Pam. I see a lot of people that have um, themselves suffered some, some um, hardship, whether it be physical threats, um, or, or physical harm to themselves or, or family members. The, the, um, a lot of times I see, um, folks that have have, especially business owners, small business owner in, um, Central American countries, that face extortion from the gangs. If you live in so and so area, you have to pay us. Um, protection money right and a lot of times these folks are barely making it as it is so they don't have enough money to pay the protection and these gangs will carry out that threat it's not a threat that is an empty threat Um, and I see a lot of that happening where um, folks end up alright I'm gonna close shop take everything I have and leave and 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 seek protection However, the courts have said again and again that that is not a valid asylum claim. So that cuts off a large group of, of folks that may otherwise have some some claim, right? Because again, it's not a valid asylum claim. Secondly, what I've seen happening is a narrowing of what's called a particular social group. So, when you apply for asylum based on membership in a particular social group, it must be something about you that that you you can't really change, right? It's it, it's um, um for example, and it has to be a um a um. A, a, a particular group that can be identified. So basically, you women, all women in Guatemala, that's too broad of a group, right? Sure. or um, you know, uh, but let's say, um, single women in Guatemala that have um, uh, that have been, um, that suffered domestic violence at the hands of a spouse or so or so and so. That is more of a specific group that can be identified. One of the things that happened under the Trump administration um, is that the former Attorney General had taken on a lot of um, uh, uh, asylum claim and, and basically um, restricted what a, a, a valid asylum claim is, and I give you one example in particular. Um, the one I mentioned earlier, women um, facing domestic violence in the home country, There's there was some prior case law that says that is a particular social group. That was reversed under the Trump administration. So there has been a restricting of what asylum is under the Trump administration, but um, the folks that I see, um, rarely do I get someone that hasn't suffered anything, and they're saying, well, I'm just here for a job, and if that is the case, then they should have been turned around at the border, because the idea is they don't have a credible fear to make it into the U.S. in the first place. So usually the folks that I see have some claim to an asylum, but whether or not they're going to win that asylum, that's another question.
3: And there's to, to tack onto that too, and I agree with what you're what you're saying is, um, if there's uh, some kind of economic oppression and in, in wherever they come from, that is not a valid reason to obtain asylum because you you were unable to make a living, um, you you had a Correct. problem. Yes. Because that that deals with a failed government. And if you're if the entire government is failing, you cannot extend the asylum to everyone there, which, in essence, you would by by acknowledging that as a failed government. So it has to be, um, it has to be personal, and what is it about? Uh, it's usually a government action. Um, let's go back to your to your gang activity for except for example. So if you've been subjected to this gang activity and and asking for protection money and things like that, um, that's not sufficient. However, if the government has been complicit against you specifically, and only you, that. Uh, maybe um, you know for whatever whatever possible reason they, they they might have. Um, but the government had been complicit, and they were not supportive, and they did not assist that particular person, and they were continually subjected to to that problem. In theory, they might have a claim. It would be a, a tenuous one, but I think that they would have a better claim than one who was simply here for a um, uh, a little bit of gang violence and a failed government and some once economic opportunity.
0: Well, if you're just joining the show, we're exploring Governor Ron DeSantis' recently announced series of actions concerning immigration with Southwest Florida-based immigration attorney Indira DeMine and FGCU law professor Pamela C. If you'd like to comment on our conversation or engage with fellow listeners, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On Twitter, we're at WGCU Use the hashtag GCL. Um, Pam, can we get a, a little more into some of the other actions that are within the executive order? Sure. Um, specifically, this ordering of, of state agencies under his purview, uh, basically to, to, to stop cooperating with the feds or, or any other entities in, in you know the transportation of, of migrants from the U.S. southern border into Florida also encouraging the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and Florida Highway Patrol to, you know, detain vehicles, you know, buses, airplanes, what have you. If there's a suspicion, they may be transporting unlawful migrants. Um, Does any of this strike you in any way as problematic or executive overreach, or, or is this well within the governor's authority?
3: I believe it is within his authority, and I look at this from a jurisdictional standpoint. That what the, the the governor is saying is that they will not assist in the relocation of persons because that is not within a, a state jurisdiction. That is a that is certainly federal. So there is no um, uh, there is no need or uh, need for that to happen. And under the, the the state of Florida, these law enforcement officers have other work to do. And he's pointed it out in several in several points in the executive order that. Jurisdictionally, this is a fed- it's a federal thing, not a state thing. So, so that's 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 one aspect of it. Um, and if this were a law enforcement matter, it would be something different, I think. But that particular part of it, where they're saying do not assist with the transportation of aliens, if that was a law enforcement aspect, then they should be helping. You know if the way i see it that since it would be law enforcement this is not a law enforcement matter so um, does he have the ability and the right to do this i believe that he does and I think he is within the way he stated it and approached it. I think he has he has made it pretty clear that this is this is very different from previous uh, issues where they requested uh, law enforcement to assist specifically with immigration matters and to assist the federal government. Why? Because that is a law enforcement matter. This is transport of persons who have already been brought into the United States, allowed into the United States, there's no law enforcement aspect available to it.
0: Okay, okay, And, dear, and I wanted to get your reaction to, to the aspects of the executive order that we've just been discussing. Um, is there anything in mean, there that, that concerns you or that you see as problematic? I'm just thinking just maybe broadly, not even about what it's doing, but maybe just giving people this perspective that anyone who's a migrant is is probably a criminal and that just isn't the case but it's it it just seems like that might be the narrative that some people are going to walk away from with a lot of this reaction and not just from DeSantis from from lots of um other governors and, and and state administrations
1: right right and and that's kind of been the um the uh the go-to language um, that, that um, has been used when describing um, immigrants coming to the United States. And just for the record, immigrants have come to the United States forever since the beginning of the United States, right? But um, most recently, this narrative surrounding what it means to be an immigrant um, and, and this misconception regarding why are people coming to the United States Um, Without legal status, right? I think what what we're seeing here is the symptoms of a broken legal immigration system and Everybody is trying is looking at the symptoms and and coming up with their own solutions Versus actually looking at the legal immigration system. Do you know that if I a Mexican? um, National I'm now a naturalized citizen of the United States if I wanted to petition for my child who is in Mexico my um, and I wanted to bring them to the United States? Do you know how long that petition will take legally over twenty years, maybe thirty i, I haven 't looked at the visa bulletin recently yeah. um, so so if we look what we 're seeing here is is are the symptoms of a broken legal immigration system, and no one is actually looking or addressing the lawful legal immigration system and how do we fix that and I, I believe that if we're able to do that then then um, this narrative would change around what you know um, undocumented immigrants and what is bringing them to the United States Let, Let's say what is bringing unlawful immigrants or undocumented immigrants to the United States is better economic um, opportunities. I will say as an immigrant to the United States uh, economic opportunities, is the reason why most immigrants come to United States, and, and here's why. If and, and and I'm describing my own story here. My my father was a rice farmer in Guyana and worked very long hours. And and and, and, um, and, and, and Guyana was once a British colony, so so that became a free country in the '60s, right? So it lacked the basic infrastructure um, and systems in place. To um, so that my father could get a better life. Now across the the, the Atlantic Ocean is this land of, of opportunities, and I will say as an immigrant, that is what it, the, uh, the United States is looked at or seen as a, uh, from an immigrant perspective, a land of opportunities where no matter your status, no matter your education background or or where you come from, no matter if you're a rice farmer with no education, it is a place where you can make something of yourself. And that is what immigrants think of when they think of America. And, and I do agree that People come here for economic opportunities. Where I disagree is with with this the um, the narrative of what it means to be an immigrant. The trek that people that immigrants take to come to to the United States very rarely, and and this goes from my own experience dealing with the immigrant community. Very rarely, and I can say this with confidence, do I get an immigrant, undocumented immigrant? who is a um, drug dealer, smuggler, um, um, has any criminal history whatsoever. Any criminal history whatsoever. Um, and so I think it is a, um, a, a, a the wrong message you send out when you say, you know, um, you have no idea what's coming in, criminals, and this and that. I, I think that it is... Um, um from my experience very rarely do i have criminals coming to me with a lengthy criminal history that is looking for lawful status in the united states in fact I have at n- never had someone that had a criminal history background from a home country that was able to make their way to Florida with a criminal history background in their home country seeking legal status in the United States. So um, I, so that's the first thing. Secondly, I, I, I do wanna say there is a job, cri- there is a crisis in the workforce right now finding employer employees to find positions in the U.S. And this is across the United States um, as a, as a um, result of COVID-19. And you have a large number of folks trying to find jobs coming from these foreign countries. I will say that the immigrants that I meet, they don't want to be undocumented. They want to be able to travel back and go back to their home country if that opportunity or or that existed. My take on this is is that we need to relook really at the lawful immigration system that we have in place, look at the temporary work visas that we have in place, and maybe we need to increase or expand on the work visas that we um, that we have available to immigrants because I really believe that if we give folks the um, the opportunity, to work here for um, three months out of the year, return to your home country, and come back in, um, I, I, I really believe that folks would take advantage of that of programs like that. But in fact, what we're seeing happening is that a lot of the industries here in Southwest Florida um, would go would hire undocumented immigrants paying them um, a lower wage and still taking advantage of the um, labor pool but doing so against the law, right? So it's not that the, the US economy or the US workforce or um, is, is not reliant on the immigrant work, work pool, they're just doing it illegally uh, under the table. So, so I really think that we're, we're looking at the symptoms of a larger issue, which is the broken legal immigration system. And Derek, I agree, absolutely.
3: Um, I, when I first graduated law school, I started doing immigration law 30 years ago, maybe more. Anyway, <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> and,
2: and we talked
3: about it then, and we knew the system was totally broken. It did not work. Um, they, there were these wonderful uh, descriptions. Oh, well, there's the family-based side, and there's the business-based side, and it works so well. And yet it didn't. And the visa bulletins that you see now that show that these these certain countries are years and years and years backlogged, and when some people may never get in even though they've had their applications in for ten, fifteen, twenty years, mm-hmm. it is broken. We have a terrible system, and no one is willing to stand up and make it better um you know and and i I want to add an aside personally I've had a few different experiences um I've had a lot of people call me that were um uh, criminals that wanted some assistance okay. to come in and a, a lot of drug backgrounds and um, women that wanted to marry men that had been arrested previously and I mean just a, a lot like that um, and, and I mean it's not a not a not a great number, but enough to know that yeah they they do happen and that if they do um, if they were willing to contact me and I turned them down, I know they're going somewhere else and I know they're getting help. And I know they're probably here and they probably lied to do it um, because they asked me, uh, well, what if I don't tell them? <laughs> I can't. I'm not I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. But, you know, the, the, the fact that people do want to come here. And if you've had a criminal uh, a criminal history of some kind, in fact, I've worked with some that had criminal histories, and I got them uh, visas, and many I got green cards, and um, some are, are living here in the United States being very, very productive people. Um, we do need a, a positive workforce, and one of the ways we find that positive workforce is to get immigrants We've, we've done that f- throughout the history of the United States. How do you think we all got here? That when people came here to the United States, they, they were working. We are in a critical situation for uh, a workforce now. We need people to work. Well, why can't we find a way to welcome folks? And I think what you're talking about, um, that, that three months or what have you, um, I think that would be great. Um, it's a matter of getting Congress to get up off their um, – uh, uh, paperwork, <laughs> and, and see if they can come up with a new system, something that they can fix.
0: all okay. well, right Well, before we close things out, I did want to just circle back to the executive order here a little bit. He's calling on DeSantis, calling on the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to to regularly audit companies that do business here in Florida to um, you know ensure that they're employing people who can legally work in the U.S. This seems like the least there's no contention with that. But it was a little alarming to me because I I feel I'm a little Pollyanna over here because I just assumed that was the sort of thing that was already happening. And relatedly, DeSantis expressed frustration with not being able to get any... Answers from the Bind administration about numbers of people coming into Florida, where they're going, what their backgrounds are, what their COVID status is. And at first I'm thinking like, well, maybe this is a political move. And now I'm thinking, well, maybe they're not calling back because they don't have those answers. They don't have those numbers.
3: They are mandated to have those. It's called the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. And that mandates that the the USCIS has to respond to every inquiry, and they are responsible for keeping that data. They can't. They are unable to keep up with the data. And if that's the case, then back to Congress, they have not provided sufficient funding for the agency to do that. Maybe they need to do that kind of funding to to do what's necessary and required currently in in the law so that they can make this a little bit better, but um, right now they're not doing it.
0: Gotcha, well, it's kind of a sour note to leave things on, but we are about out of time, and I, I did not think that the three of us were gonna butt heads and solve the problem, but I, I do think that you know, providing some clarity to just how severe the situation is is, is maybe part of the first step. Um, Thank you so much to my guests. We've been speaking with Southwest Florida-based immigration attorney Indira Demine of the Demine Immigration Law Firm. You can find out more at demineimmigration.com. Indira, thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And we've also been joined in studio by Florida Gulf Coast University law professor Pamela C. You can read more about her on her website, pamela C.com. That's Pamela with two L's and C spelled S-E-A-Y. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org G-C-L, or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcast. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, Thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO, Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.